Thank you, Jim. Good morning. I want to start by asking you how many people know who this is? Recognize that guy? Remember the basic storyline or premise of Peter Pan? What did he not want to do? Yeah, didn't want to grow up. He didn't want to become an adult and assume all the responsibilities of such. However, even Peter Pan understood that children naturally grow and mature. Neverland, while great, is fiction. It's not real. What happens in the real world is things grow. And you think about the different things in life that are signified by growth. You have seedlings that grow. You have businesses that grow. Organisms grow. Hopefully, my investments grow. A lot of different things grow. In fact, there are many things in life that are signified by growth or determined to be successful or right or true by their growth and development. And certainly that is the case when it comes to faith. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, the writer starts, let's look at verse 12 and following. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the actual words of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unacquainted with the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to distinguish between good and evil. You know who the Hebrew writer is speaking to here? You could say Hebrew Christians, and that would be right. He's actually talking to Peter Pan Christians, Christians that are refusing to grow. And you know what the message is to them? Grow up. It's that simple. You need to be growing. You're not growing. In fact, you're stuck in perpetual infancy, and that's a problem. It's weird to see a teenage boy or girl with a pacifier in their mouths. It's strange to see a mother holding their 12 or 13-year-old in their arms and feeding them a bottle, setting them on their lap and burping them and then rocking them to sleep. That's odd. And the Hebrew writer says, just as weird is the idea that you can be a Christian and be stuck in perpetual infancy. You should be growing. You should be reaching maturity. You should be progressing in your faith. But he says, you should be feeding other people by now. That's the key. That's really the signifier that you are growing is that you're able to feed other people. That's a clear indication of growth and maturity. When you reach the point that you can bottle feed someone else. Remember when your kids were really little? For some of you, that's not hard to remember because they're still there. But when your kids were really small and, and your life just revolved around taking care of their basic needs. It was feed them change their diaper, feed them, change their diaper, rinse and repeat, right? Remember those little wins that came? Like when they were able to hold their own bottle and you could lay them in the floor and do other things while they fed themselves by holding their own bottle? Remember when they could sit in their own high chair and feed themselves by picking up the food and putting it in their mouths? Or remember when they could actually sit at the table and manipulate a fork and, and spoon and feed themselves? There were little wins along the way. And then eventually they came to a point where as teenagers, they walk in the house and they say, Mom, I'm hungry. And Mom says, well, then get yourself something to eat, right? It's not my job anymore. 
We expect our children to grow and mature and to reach a point where they can feed themselves. There are expectations as children grow and mature in a spiritual sense. These Christians that the Hebrew writer is writing to, they were holding back the gospel by demanding that everyone else continue to feed them and stick a bottle in their mouth. Not only that, their immaturity made them vulnerable. Now, if you know anything about me, you know that I, I like to be outdoors. I like to hunt. I like to fish. And if you follow me on social media, you see that I like to post pictures of the things that I catch. One of my favorite types of fishing is bass fishing. I like to go out early in the morning just as the sun's coming up. I like to use a topwater bait. That's the most fun, in my opinion. Drag it across the water, and hopefully the bass ambush it. Hopefully it's like a five to ten pounder. So one of my favorite pieces of bait is this. So this is a frog. It's a white frog. Depending on the weather, whether it's overcast or whatever, you use different colors. But this is a white frog. So you run this across the water. It stays on top. And hopefully, like I said, the bass hit it. You reel them in, hold them up, take a picture of them, post it on social media, right? But so one thing that you can do with these frogs is you can actually take one of the tails that represents the legs and you can cut it in half. So you can cut off this much of it. And what does that do? Well, it allows the frog to swim through the water like it's hurt. Well, what does that matter? Well, because bass, like most predators, will go after something that is hurt or that is weak. You see that in nature all the time. If you ever watch those nature shows, the lion always goes after the weakest, the one that's hurt or the youngest because they're easier to catch. They don't have the wisdom yet to stick with the herd. And that's what the Hebrew writer is driving at. He's saying, you guys are vulnerable, you're weak, because you're not growing. You're stuck in perpetual infancy, and it's hurting you. It's making you uh, susceptible to the predator. I want you to back up and look with me at verse 1 and following. Let's get some context here, and notice what he says in chapter 5, verse 1 and following. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of people in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is clothed in weakness and because of it he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins for himself as well as for the people. And no one takes the honor for himself but receives it when he is called by God just as Aaron was." So too, Christ did not glorify himself in becoming a high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have fathered you. Just as he also says in another passage, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his humanity, he offered up both prayers and pleas with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his devout behavior. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things that he suffered, and having been perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. It's that last line that really I want to focus on for just a few moments. Melchizedek, who, who was that? Well, we can look back in Genesis chapter 14 specifically, and we can find a, a few things out about this man that will help us to set the context. In verse 17 of Genesis 14, 
It reads, Then after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shuvay, that is, the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So that's about it. That's what we know about Melchizedek. I mean, he's mentioned in Psalm 110 briefly, but other than that, we don't know a whole lot about this man named Melchizedek. But there are two things we find out about him in Genesis chapter 14 that helps us to connect some dots to Hebrews chapter 5. And the two most important things you need to know about Melchizedek is, number one, he was a king, and number two, he was a priest. It says that he was a king of peace and righteousness which stood in direct contrast to the king of Sodom, who was anything but a king of peace and righteousness. It also says that Melchizedek was king over the city of Salem. You know what the city of Salem became later? Jerusalem, right, okay? So he was also a priest, not only a king, he was a priest, and in fact, he stands above the priesthood as one who is superior to all the priests because he had no genealogy. We've talked about this before, but if you wanted to be a priest, you had to be a Levite, and you had to produce a pure genealogy that went all the way back to Aaron. And if you couldn't do that, then you couldn't be a priest. And yet, Melchizedek stands above the priesthood because he didn't have that genealogy. He couldn't trace it back, which shows that he was divinely appointed for the position. Melchizedek did not have the genealogy, so he did not receive the priesthood through natural or physical descent. He received it directly from God. Now, knowing all that, do you see the, the dots connecting a little bit? You see how this connects to Jesus? People weren't both priest and king. That was a rarity. You were one or the other, but you weren't both. Jesus is the king of kings, and he's the great high priest. However, he was not qualified to be a priest by earthly descent. Why? He wasn't a Levite. He couldn't trace his genealogy back to Aaron. But he was appointed by God. He was God, in fact. But there's a difference between Melchizedek and Jesus. Obviously, Melchizedek, though he was priest and king, he was a, a priest over a carnal system where you offered sacrifices of atonement. He was a king over an earthly kingdom. Not so with Jesus. Jesus is the king of kings over the heavenly kingdom. He is also our great high priest who makes atonement for our sins once and for all. Melchizedek was also a precursor. He was a shadow of the things to come. Remember, the major theme in the book of Hebrews is better than. Jesus is better than. And so the Hebrew writer is trying to make that connection for these people, but they couldn't, they couldn't handle it. They couldn't take it in because they were stuck in perpetual infancy. The Hebrew writer is trying to teach them a whole lot more about the law and the prophets and everything that it pointed to and how Jesus is the culmination of all of that, that he is the, the, the point of the whole story. But the Hebrew writer can't connect those dots yet, even though they should be able to make these connections. He couldn't do that with them because they were still sucking from a bottle. They should have been ready to accept it, but they were too infantile. And that was a problem because there were so many deeper truths that they needed to connect to. These Jewish Christians had so much more to learn. But like Jack Nicholson in the movie Few Good Men, they, they couldn't handle the truth. These babies needed more, but they were still stuck on a bottle. You go back to Hebrews chapter 5. 
Verse 14, but solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to distinguish between good and evil. Maybe now would be a good time to make a distinction between milk and meat because there is a distinction to be made. I think I put together a chart. Cameron, if you would go to that. So there's the chart. Milk is Jesus' teachings as recorded in Scripture. Meat is putting Jesus' teachings into action. Milk is learning what God says. Meat is doing what God says. Milk is content. Meat is use of the content. That's very simplistic, but I think that's a good way to look at this. If you want a scriptural example, James sums it up beautifully in James chapter 1, verses 22 and following. He writes, But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not just hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror, For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who has looked intently at the perfect law, the law of freedom, and has continued in it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effective doer, this person will be blessed in what he does. So hearing the word is good, but knowledge is never an end in and of itself. Knowledge is a means to an end. So it's not what you know, it's what you do with what you know. So the idea is you take what you know, you put it into action. It's not just about gathering data, gathering information. It's about transformation. Look with me at John chapter 4, starting in verse 31. It says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. And to accomplish his work. Jesus is telling his disciples what he eats. I think this is good for us to pay attention to. If Jesus is going to tell us what he eats, we need to pay attention. And what does he eat? Well, he says that his food was to serve God. To do the will of the Father, he says. To do what he was sent to do. In other words, Jesus' spiritual food was not to sit passively and receive, but to roll up his sleeves And to do, according to Jesus, being fed isn't just about hearing, it's about doing. Because we weren't saved to soak, we were saved to serve. There's a book called The Lost Art of Disciple Making. And in it is a very interesting passage. Leroy Elms is the author of this book. He writes, one spring our family was driving from Fort Lauderdale to Tampa, Florida. And as far as the eye could see, orange trees were loaded with fruit. When we stopped for breakfast, I ordered orange juice with my eggs. I'm sorry, the waitress said, I can't bring you orange juice. Our machine is broken. Well, at first I was dumbfounded. We were surrounded by millions of oranges and I knew that they had oranges in the kitchen. Orange slices that garnished our plates. What was the problem? No juice, hardly. We were surrounded by thousands of gallons of juice. The problem was they had become dependent on a machine to get it. He says Christians are sometimes like that. They may be surrounded by Bibles in their homes, but if something should happen to the Sunday morning preaching service, they would have no nourishment for their souls. The problem is not a lack of spiritual food, but that many Christians haven't grown enough to know how to get it for themselves. Folks, please hear me on this. Please look at me when I say this. You will never reach maturity if I am your only source of nourishment. You can't come here and be fed on Sunday and fast the rest of the week. The church offers a free spiritual buffet every week, and you need to take advantage of that, especially considering that many Christians don't 
during the week, study on their own. You need to take full advantage of the opportunity to feast here on Sunday. And it is a major responsibility for the preacher, for the Bible class teacher, for the shepherds to make certain that you are fed. If you go to church and you're not fed, that's a problem. And if you ever attend a church that you're not fed, get out of there as quickly as possible. It is our responsibility to make sure that you are fed the truth. However, this cannot be your only source of nourishment. If you are only getting your nutrients from the church service, you're going to be starving. And you're never going to grow to maturity. And I bring this up because I think all too often among Christians today, they look at the church like a cruise ship. I step on board, I come through the doors, I step on board, and the whole goal of a cruise ship is to be entertained. So I'm in it for the entertainment. I'm a passive consumer. What can you do for me? How can you help me and entertain me? The cruise ship mentality is one that if it's not satisfied, I just go to another cruise ship down the road. But instead of looking at the church like a cruise ship, look at it as a battleship because that's what it is. You're not coming aboard a cruise ship. You're coming aboard a battleship. This is the fight of our lives. And this battleship, we're all in that fight together. And the only complaint that should be heard among a battleship is, where do I serve? Give me a place to serve. I don't have a place to serve. That should be the only complaint that's made. Because this isn't about being a passive consumer or a passive recipient. This is about being an active participant. And look, you've got to become a self-feeder at some point. We all do. We've all got to become self-feeders. The church can and should assist and encourage you to grow and develop as a Christian, but ultimately we're going to have to become self-sufficient if we ever want to reach maturity. You see how baby birds get fed? You ever notice that? Mama birds take the food in and they chew it up and drop it in their little mouths. I can't do that for you every week. That can't be your only source of nourishment. At some point, you've got to learn to take off the bib and put on an apron. Now, I'm sure you've probably noticed that I've kind of created a false dichotomy here. Did I knock that off? I think I get, quit getting so worked up. I've kind of created a false dichotomy here. It's not really milk versus meat, and I'm sure you noticed that in the subtitle. Why did I do that? I guess consistency's sake. I've been doing that every week, this versus that. No, I mean, there's, there's another reason. But there is somewhat of a contrast, right? There is a distinction to be made. But the truth of the matter is, you're actually moving from milk to meat. So at some point, you take off the bib and put on an apron. But not only that, just because you're eating steak now doesn't mean that you don't like to have a glass of milk from time to time. So there are times that you put the apron, or excuse me, the bib back on, right? I mean, there are times that maybe you don't put it in a bottle and suck it like a baby, but there are times when you've got Oreos or, or, or chocolate chip cookies out of the oven that you want to go back to using milk, and you want to drink milk, dip your cookies in, you want to use milk for your cereal, so you don't ever completely leave the milk. I mean, there are times when it's good to return to those foundational truths. Even the pro athletes do that. In spring training in baseball, they put the ball up on a tee. These professional athletes making you know, millions of dollars are still hitting off a tee to try to get their swing refined. So it's okay to go back to putting on the bib from time to time. This is about growth and maturity. And we never stop growing. We never stop maturing. 
we move from milk to meat, but we may go back to milk again at times. It's kind of like the, the group of tourists that were walking through a picturesque village, and there was an old man sitting on a park bench, and one of the tourists kind of condescendingly asked him, is any, any great heroes ever born here? He goes, no, just babies. Because there are no such thing as instant heroes, right? There's no such thing as instant heroes. They're grown. They're, they're, they're born and they're bred. It takes time. This is about growth and development. Milk is the teachings of Jesus. Meat is the application of those teachings. And both are vital for your nourishment. Both are vital to your growth and development. Think about it this way. The football team has a big game on Saturday. And so all week they spend preparing for the big game. They watch film. They sit in position meetings. They come up with a, a strategy, a game plan. The coaches deliver that game plan to them, so this is how we're going to beat them. They try to expose the weakness of the other team. They look at their strengths and their weaknesses. They practice. They, they work on honing their skills and, and refining their plays, but they also have the scout team running the plays of the team they're going to play so that they can see what they're going to do to them. The day of the big game comes, and you have a walkthrough, last-minute instructions, and you're good, right? That's it. We're, we're good. We spent all week preparing. We're ready. We don't have to do anything else. Obviously, that would be silly because there's still one more facet to go. What is it? Well, you've got to play the game, right? I mean, you've got to go out and you've got to execute because all the preparation means nothing if you don't go out and execute. It would be silly to go through all that preparation and spend all that time getting ready for the big game and never play the big game. Win or lose, you want to go out there and see how you do. So you go out there and you execute the game plan. When I was in high school, my best friend was on the team with me. His name was Ryan Rooney, still my best friend. But Ryan and I were on the team together, although Ryan didn't get to play a whole lot. And it was towards the end of the game, and... Uh, I don't remember if we were winning by a lot or losing by a lot, but my guess would be we were losing by a lot. And Ryan was one of those 40-40 guys. You know what a 40-40 guy is? When you're up by 40 or down by 40 with 40 seconds to play, he gets to play. So that was the kind of guy he was. And so coach calls for Ryan. Rudy, get over here. And so Ryan's so excited because he never got to play. And Ryan was a wide receiver like I was. And so we called the plays with the wide receiver. So coach would give the play to one of us. We would run in the play, and then we would execute, right? So Ryan gets the play from coach, he runs in, and I got distracted by something, I don't know what was going on, and I look over and Ryan's standing beside me, and I said, Ryan, what are you doing? And he goes, I had to run in the play. I go, yeah, you're supposed to stay out and run the play. He had no idea, he thought he was just supposed to run in the play, he didn't realize he was a part of the play as well, and so he literally does this. And gets on the field. Takes one step on the field, nobody ever noticed. Thankfully, the ball didn't go to him. Coach was smarter than that. But he just steps on the field and he runs the play. But for Ryan, he misunderstood the goal. The goal was not just to run in the play. The goal was to execute the play as well. And let's not make the same mistake. It's not enough to prepare by getting all the information. At some point, the information has to translate into application and 
transformation. Folks, I love our team. I know you do as well. I love this team. And so I want to encourage our team this morning to continue to be a bunch of of growers and goers. We're doing great things here. And it's exciting to see what God is doing for this congregation. We're a team of growers and goers. Let's go out and let's execute the game plan. And let's claim the victory that God has promised us. Just like the people of the Old Testament, God has promised us victory. We just have to go out and claim it. And we do that by following his will and rallying together. Staying on his side and staying together. If we can help you this morning, please let us. Whatever your need is, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing.